ready? Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Borei pri hagahafen, Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech olam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. All of that. <laughs> now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and I pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruchu, the call to worship. Baruchu et Aronai Hamvorach, Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha. Ma'elim Adonai Michamocha Nedar Bakodesh Norate Hilot 
Blessing of Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu et derech haYeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et Hashabbat la'asot et Hashabbat la'doratam berit olam b'nei Ovayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam. Kishishet yamin asa aronai et hashmayim va et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat vayinefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elochecha. Bechol levavcha, uvchol nafshecha, uvchol meyodecha. Vahayu hadevarim ha'alei asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. Vashinantam levanecha, vidibartabam, vashivtacha, babethcha, uvlechtecha, viderech, uvshuchbecha, uvkumicha. Ukshartam leot al yedecha, vahayu le totafot benanecha. Uktaftam al mezuzot betecha uvisharecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. This is a promise. 
father to his people. If my people, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. And if my people, if my people who are called by my name, by my name will humble themselves and seek my face. And if they'll turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear and will forgive their sin and I'll hear their land I'll hear their land I'll hear their land I'll hear their land with us if my people, if my people who are called by my name, by my name will humble themselves and pray and if my people, if my people who are called by my name, by my name will humble themselves and seek my faith and if they'll turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal and will forgive their sin. And I'll heal their land, I'll heal their land, and I'll heal their land, and I'll heal their land.
heal our land Heal our land Heal our land Oh, 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 heal our land Heal our land Oh, heal our land If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my faith. Keep me to your Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our Arab Shabbat service here at B'nai Shalom. Uh, this is the Shabbat called Emor. We are in the book of Leviticus, and uh, we're at um, Leviticus uh, chapter 21, and it extends through chapter 23, one of my favorite chapters in the Torah. Um, and the this week's portion is giving uh, specific and detailed instructions, again, back to the priesthood. Leviticus is the instructions to the Levites, instructions to the priests. And we have some additional instructions to the Levite priests as to how they are to conduct themselves. And uh, the first part of this portion uh, deals with whom they can marry and who they can't marry, and that their task is to set an example for the children of Israel to show the difference between the clean and unclean, the holy and the profane. And obviously you have to be at that standard before you can be used to teach that as a standard to the other people. And so this is the portion that gives some of the instructions to them 
with regard to those things. And that's the parallel that we have in the Hoftor portion, which takes us to Ezekiel 44, in which Ezekiel is defining now the temple and the priesthood uh, that is going to be after the return of the exiles, after the, the end of the ages when the Messiah has returned, and it's giving instructions to how the temple service will be conducted there and how the priests will operate. There's some interesting parallels uh, that tie into it, and a little bit of a controversy I'll mention to you uh, between those two within Judaism. Uh, this also, the Torah portion also carries over to chapter 23 and deals with the subject of, of the biblical uh, appointed times, the holidays. And the, the portion, it, the name of it is called Emor, and, which means speak. And it comes from the first verses there in Leviticus 21 where it says, speak uh, to the people, speak to the priesthood, speak to Aaron. Uh, and and so forth. Uh, there's a couple of interesting words that the Torah uses when they go to communicate. Back earlier in Leviticus, it was the word command, command Aaron and his sons. This one says, speak to them uh, about these things. It's not necessarily that there's less imperative to it, but there's a little bit different flavor and, and when he says, speak to them, there's usually more explanation. There's more rationale to understand. And um, I've always felt that this Hebrew word amor has a very powerful word picture in it that ties into all of this. If you break the individual Hebrew letters down for the word amor, it, it speaks to the following, the strength of the headwaters. Um, when a person speaks, it's like the words flow out, and they don't necessarily stop there. If the words are effective and heard by people, they go to this, and then that goes to this person and goes further to that person. And so the idea that uh, Moses is saying he speak to the priests and that those words would continue to flow on. If you can, I'll take a picture of like a river a river of words that would continue to flow. Now, there are small rivers, there are great rivers, and a great river, uh, it, the, the question is, go back to the headwaters. They can be small, they don't have to be a large amount, but are how strong are they? How faithful are they? Do they continue to flow? And if you have, say, a spring coming out of the ground, and it continues to flow and flow and flow and flow, then that waters that are later on going to be uh, downstream, they will continue to be strong and faithful uh, you know, for it. Uh, when I was in Israel, uh, I learned that there are three headwaters for the Jordan River. The middle one uh, it comes out of the tribal land of Dan, and by the way, that's what Jordan means. Jordan means out of Dan. And that set of waters that is the headwater of the Jordan River, it, it's springs that come out of the ground. It's a constant flow. It's not greater, not less than. It is a constant flow of water. Now, the other two uh, headwaters that stream into it, they can be very 
depending on the environment, how much rainfall they get, other things like that. But that one is constant. And it's a, an interesting picture to us about these instructions. Speak to them and let this be a constant flow uh, of these things. So with that word picture, there must be some pretty powerful and important and stuff in this instruction. And in fact, there is. Very specific instructions to the priesthood. The standards for the priesthood are greater than the standards for your average Israeli citizen. One of the things that I've always shared about the commandments of the Torah is there's 613 commandments, but not seeing one single person has to address all of those. There are some commandments that are just for men, some for women. So obviously, if you're a man, you don't have to worry about the commandments for women. If you're a priest, there's an additional set of commandments, but if you're not a priest, the, the, those don't necessarily apply to you. If you're the high priest, there's some additional commandments that apply to you that don't necessarily apply to even the other priests and so forth. And what it comes down to is the higher your level of position of responsibility, the more commandments that you have to keep. And this is a known reality. This is not new information for you folks. Uh, as you rise in responsibility, you actually commit yourself to a higher standard that you must perform. A leader has to be more accountable than, say, a regular person. And if you make a mistake as a leader, there are usually greater consequences than if you're just a regular person within an organization. And that is certainly the case of what we see here in these instructions about the kind of stringent requirements uh, that have to do with this. The, um, I want to take you to one of the requirements that is specified here uh, in, in um, uh, our portion, Emor, in the Cedra portion of Leviticus, and then I want to draw a comparison to the other one that's in the Hoftor portion. They, they repeat. Now, mind you, the, the ones in Leviticus, this is Moses giving instruction to the Levitical priesthood that are going to service the tabernacle and ultimately the temple in Jerusalem. But what Ezekiel's talking about is he's talking about the priesthood and the temple that will be in the kingdom after the Messiah returns, after the return of the exiles from the nations. So let me take you to this little passage. We're going to do a quick comparison here. And there's a rather interesting uh, point that we need to bring out. Let me take you first to Leviticus chapter 21. And at verse 14, uh, it's talking and it says, A widow or one divorced or a profaned woman or a harlot he shall not take, but a virgin of his own people shall he take. Now, the question you got to ask, is that talking about every Levitical priest or is that talking about the high priest? Now, we know for sure it's got to be the high priest. The high priest definitely has to step up to this. But the question is, what about um, the regular priest? Can he marry, say, the widow of a previous priest? Or can he... Uh, marry a woman that was put away, was divorced in a previous marriage. And there was some controversy to the extent 
that yes, that that was permissible uh, in in under the instructions of Moses. Now, with that said, and that's historically how they did it. Now, with that said, let me take you to our portion in the Haftorah, which is in Ezekiel forty-four. And let me take you to this instruction, which is very similar to that one, in which that it says the following. This is at verse 22, Ezekiel 44, verse 22. Neither shall they take their wives uh, a widow, nor her that is put away, but they shall take virgins of the seed of Israel as a widow is from the widow or a widow that is a widow of a priest. Now, the plural is definitely here, they. So, whereas before it was singular. And so, this has been a little bit of a controversy within Judaism about this book. In fact, the point that I'm showing to you was the basis of an argument within the the history of, of Israel in which they almost did not want to accept the book of Ezekiel to be part of the Tanakh. They considered this requirement, the way Ezekiel's giving it, to be in violation of their interpretation and understanding of the commandment um, that's given in Amor or in Leviticus by Moses. And the way this has been kind of sorted out over time is they view what is being done in the Haftor portion here as being more uh, stringent uh, requirement, that when we get into the kingdom, it will be a higher requirement, and that all of the priests that will serve in that temple before the Messiah will have to meet this requirement as opposed to just the high priest. Now, I would make the argument that really, the requirement that's here in Ezekiel is the same one that should be back in Leviticus. That the priesthood should never take a widow, and they should only marry a virgin, and they, you know, that that should be it, like the way it says. That's the plain sense of the text. But you know how these religious controversies emerge. What happens is you get a group of people together, you're all trying to follow the Lord, and certain things happen. Um, this guy meets that gal, falls in love, and gets married. And he's a key guy here. He's a key priest here. And we use his services, and he's a good guy. And all of a sudden, we find this verse that says he's not supposed to take, say, a divorced woman. So what are we going to do about that? Well, let's find some way to get around that. So we'll say, oh, well, that was a requirement only on the high priest. That wasn't on the regular priest. See, it's singular, he so there must be referring only to the high priest, whereas in Ezekiel, it's talking about they, plural, all the priests. And so now it will be that standard in the future, but not this standard there. And they actually come up with all kinds of excuses to support this. Well, you got to remember, we're immature in our spiritual faith, and this God grants this to us in a while while we transition to the much higher level, you know, uh, before the Lord, as though... Uh, the commandments that are given by the Lord really don't have that much weight or specificity. And we'll just take this commandment that was there in Leviticus, and we'll just say it's exclusive only to the high priest and doesn't apply to everybody else. 
uh, it doesn't, certainly doesn't apply to the other priests. This is the normal game that's played by religious men, uh, where God speaks of, to a certain thing, setting the standard, and they don't want to conform to the standard because maybe they've already, excuse the expression, but they've already peed on that fire hydrant, and they can't take it back, and so they're going to try to find a way to justify it and, and get past that. We see a host of examples of this. And let me just say to you that while I am not a big advocate of going crazy with all kinds of extra standards and conditions for keeping the commandments, I think that if God hasn't specified the standard or the condition of keeping the commandment, I think we have the wherewithal to understand how to keep the commandment. We should just do it as unto the Lord, not unto men. And we shouldn't let other men come in and set standards on us uh, concerning those things. So the real wisdom is to understand the nature of the commandment correctly. What is the objective that God is trying to do? And let us honor that with our whole hearts. And if that means that you take uh, additional stringent steps uh, to fulfill that, well, then that's, that's what you do, especially if it's things that are controlled in your home. If there are things that are strictly within your home, I think you have the right to do that. Uh, and I don't th- but I don't think other people should be telling you how to do that. The same thing is true, really, in congregational life. Within every congregation, there's a community of families, and you have the leadership and the eldership there. And I think the eldership, they need to make a judgment on how their community, how their group's going to do it, and everybody agrees and that that will become the standard. I don't think that other fellowships should be subject to other elders in other congregations uh, telling them, well, this is the way we do it, and that's the right way to do it, and you need to do it the same way. Now, the reason I, I bring this up is because in this portion, uh, going back into Leviticus, we have one of the major controversies within all of the faith uh, in the midst of it. And if you will, turn with me to uh, Leviticus um, 23. And since we just went through the Passover season not too long ago, I want to share with you um, very, very quickly um, what, what this is. Leviticus 23 is going to talk to us about the holy days, the Moedim, the appointed times of God. And it's going to start in the springtime with the Passover and going to go through the whole set of holy days um, with Passover leading all the way to the great day of the feast, Hoshana Rabbah, which is at the conclusion of the Feast of Tabernacles. We're going to go through that whole sequence. And Moses is laying them all out as to primarily when they are to take place. He's not specifying how they're necessarily to be observed. We can look back in uh, Ezekiel 12 and see what the memorial commandments are. We can look at uh, numbers, and it'll tell us other things for the temple service for it. But this is laying out the sequence timing-wise for these things. Let me read to you um, from Leviticus 23. And again, we're going back to the subject of how far do you take the requirements, you know, as to the controversy of keeping the commandments of the Lord. 
Uh, beginning at verse 5, it says the following. In the first month, that would be the month of Nisan or Aviv, on the 14th day of the month at dusk, that's, this is uh, JPS here for it, is the Lord's Passover. Now, I think our Bibles primarily use the word at twilight. So there's some controversy. Well, what exactly is twilight when it says at twilight? Uh, but it's definitely Passover's on the 14th. And then verse 6, and on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Lord. Unleavened Bread, High Sabbath, 15th. And then you go to the 21st of the month is the final High Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, that's what it says. But that isn't necessarily what has been done. Now, you got you to gotta ask yourself, what, what? I mean, here we are learning the commandments of the Lord is pretty plain as to what it says. You do Passover on the 14th. You do the Feast of Unleavened from the 15th to the 21st, those seven days. What is the common practice within Judaism and within the world when it comes to Passover? They do it on the 15th. But the scripture said on the 14th. I know. But they do it on the 15th. And then they extend the Feast of Unleavened Bread one more day to the 22nd. So the combination of Passover and Feast of Unleavened is eight days. That's what this says here too as well. But the scripture said, no, you started on the 14th. And it goes all the way through to the 21st. This controversy existed in the days of Yeshua. In fact, this is one of the discerning differences between the Pharisaic tradition and the Sadducean tradition. Now, to review with everybody, the Pharisees were the religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, that had built the synagogue system this diverse, distributed system of assemblies in various communities uh, where they had established rabbis and teachers out in the various communities, and they're the ones who said, we're going to observe the Passover on the 15th. Whereas the Sadducees, that were primarily temple-based, they, they, they wanted to be in control of the temple, they were saying, no, it's supposed to be on the 14th, and not on that. Such a controversy existed that when it came to the formal services in the temple for the Passover lamb and for the um, Passover sacrifices and celebrations, they would have individuals uh, who wanted to eat the Passover on the 14th. They would come in the afternoon of the 13th uh, at twilight, at the end of the day, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and they would slay the Passover lambs, take them home, and prepare them to eat as the evening or the twilight, the dusk, of the 14th began. And we see the example of the New Testament. That's exactly what Yeshua and his disciples did. Uh, John and Peter took the lamb, and they went down to the temple when the Lord told them to prepare the Passover, and they were the ones who took the lamb down to the temple on the afternoon of the 13th. The lamb was slain. The blood was poured out. They brought the lamb back. 
and they prepared it that evening in what's called the upper room. That, By the way, that upper room is the room that was above David's tomb. That's what that means, the upper room. It was above David's tomb. This is the son of David there at his father's tomb. Um, and they ate the Passover. And if you'll recall, that night when they got done with the Passover, all Israel is still up. Nobody's gone to bed. The leadership is up and so forth because that night is called a watch night. That's a night everybody's expected to stay up. The, the Messiah was expecting the disciples to stay up with him uh, and to pray. But, of course, they had had some wine and they'd had a nice meal and the tryptophan and the wine probably had kicked in, so they were sleepy. Um, and, but you have this trial uh, in which that it was controlled primarily by the Sadducean sect um, there were some Pharisees in the temple council, but it was primarily controlled by the Sadducean sect, and they have this trial on the same night that Passover takes place. Well, the reason why is because they don't observe the Passover until the next night. And so they made the statement to the Romans, well, you need to uh, uh, deal with him, uh, you need to judge him, because if we judge him and condemn him, that will make us unclean, uh, for the Passover, because they were getting ready to have the Passover. Now, I know this is very controversial and confusing, but the bottom line is this. The Pharisaic sect, which is what's turned into modern rabbis of Judaism, they believed the Passover was, be, was supposed to be on the 15th, whereas Sadducees said it was supposed to be on the 14th, which is what Moses said. Yeshua and his disciples kept it on the 14th, the way Moses had said, but it was in conflict with what the Pharisees had said. And uh, Matthew, you may be familiar with what Yeshua said uh, to his disciples. He said, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. He was talking about this controversy that is here. What is the proper way to observe these things? And there's diversity in what is going on. In a lot of messianic circles today, uh, especially those that have been under my teaching, I instruct and teach the Passover is on the 14th. But the rest of Judaism and a, a lot of our brethren who join with the assembly of those brethren in keeping the Passover around the world, will do it on the 15th. They'll do it on the next night. <clears throat> and what I've discovered is, despite my best efforts to explain this and to encourage and so forth, that this, is, this controversy is no different than what has been happening historically, even going back to the days of Yeshua. And, you know, the way the Messiah dealt with this controversy when he did it was he tried to instruct his disciples to, he set the example as to when to do it, and he said, follow what I say. He was following what Moses said, and they basically said, beware of, of the other thing. But the, the reality is that he didn't really condemn them for not doing it. At least they're doing Passover. At least they're getting the message of it. And the fact is that we're still scattered in the nations, you know, 
Um, we're here in Oklahoma, remotest parts of the earth, just like what the prophet said. And we're in no position, no matter how many commandments we keep, no matter how many kippas we wear, talits we put on, that we can set the standard for really anybody. All we are doing is attempting, attempting as best we can with God's grace and mercy to go forward and try to learn his commandments, to learn his ways. And I have, um, I have every reason to believe that this controversy and, like it, and things like it will continue to rumble on until the Messiah comes. And despite my best efforts to teach and the best efforts of others to teach, this thing is just going to bubble on. And every time we turn around, somebody has never heard of this before and so forth. Well, the reason I mention this about the Moedim and so forth is that's the kind of the operating example we have about the Torah portion, Hof Torah portion, we have this Sabbath. You know, based on what if, if the strength and the faithfulness of the headwaters, if we continue, I know it's a small voice, if we just continue to teach what Moses said, slowly just be faithful and stay with it, eventually downstream, this, this is going to work out okay. But at the moment, you know, when you go up to a small stream at the head of a river, of a, even a great river, you don't see a great river. You don't see the real benefit of it yet. But as long as it continues to be faithful, the strength of the headwaters, it will continue to be faithful. The same thing is true of the instructions for the Levites and the priests. Now, I know that one doesn't apply to a lot of you. But this Moedim thing, this about when we keep the Passover, that does apply to you. But the controversies are the same. So my counsel is read the scripture for yourself. Depending on the assembly where you're at and how you observe in your home, if you want to observe on the 15th with the, the greater part of Israel scattered around the world, uh, you can do so. If you want to do it on the 14th, exactly the way the Messiah did it, the way Moses taught it, you can do that. Uh, but there's really no advantage in me coming back and strenuously trying to teach you exactly what the Torah says, because this is only one of hundreds of issues that we have in terms of trying to learn the commandments and obey the commandments all of the Lord. As you know, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, but praise God, we have his mercy and his forgiveness, and he continues to look down on our situation, and he remembers that we're just made of dust, and he continues to love us, support us, bring us up, and yes, even send the Holy Spirit to try to teach us and lead us into the truth. And brethren, that is what we will continue to do. We will continue to walk out our faith before the Lord and try to learn and trust the Lord in all of these matters. That is our portion for this Shabbat Emor. Shabbat Shalom. If you would please now turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, there toward the uh, end of our Bibles, and hold your finger at verse 13 of chapter 1, where our Brit Hadashah portion will begin for this week. And as you open the Scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for everything that you do in our lives. We thank you for this time and this opportunity once again uh, to read your word, the teaching, the instruction, Father. And uh, wherever anybody might be at this time, Father, I pray that they are blessed and encouraged and strengthened, um, not only by the work and the service of this ministry, Lord, but um, any of the other ministries that we co-labor together with. Father, I pray that you would just continue to move in the hearts of your people and as we do all the things that we do to... Um, minister to your flock, minister to the people, encourage them and strengthen them in their faith. And uh, Father, I pray that you would just use me mightily now to make your word come alive and be a blessing uh, to the brethren at this time on this week. So we love you, bless you, and thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Our Torah portion this week uh, comes to us from Leviticus chapter 21, which is entitled Imor, which means say. One of the uh, instructions, uh, several of the instructions that come from this Torah portion mainly have to do with the priests, have to do with the conduct that the priests and the standard that the priests are to hold themselves to in the work and the service of the tabernacle. Lots of this instruction might, uh, you might gloss over it because you might consider and say, well, I'm not a priest, so why do I need to pay attention to this? Well, one of the things that we need to do is we need to understand uh, two things, really. One, anyone who serves the Lord in any capacity of ministry, including parents, fathers, mothers of their families, work some form or fashion of ministry. Our first act of ministry is to our families. This We teach our kids from a very young age. This is why kids are taught to have chores is because they are to do something to help to serve the family, to do something for somebody else. That's what an advocate, that's what a minister does at its very core. You boil all away any of the doctrines or any of the things that we specifically do. Why at the heart of any person do they work in ministry? Because they work to serve someone else. We all work in some capacity of ministry. What we need to learn to do is that in the course of doing that ministry, we hold ourselves to a certain standard to do things rightly and appropriately. If you have, if you're a child and you have a chore, and your chore is to keep your room clean or empty the dishwasher. If you go to your room and then when you go to clean it up, you just throw all your stuff in the closet and close the door and call your room clean. Are you doing things rightly and appropriately? Is that truly the standard by which you are to clean your room? Of course not. Hold yourself to the righteous standard. Put everything in its place. Put it where it's supposed to go. If you empty the dishwasher and you just throw everything into a cupboard and, the, and, and you just mix up all the forks, spoons, and knives in the, in the silverware drawer and you put them in there haphazardly and did, don't organize them, are you truly doing the job in a righteous way? Now, maybe it's a little bit of an oversimplification to just call kids doing chores as an act of ministry. But at its core, if you don't learn these things as a child, doing actions and serve in service of others in a righteous, appropriate way, well, then you won't learn to do it later on in life. We've all been to a restaurant and had a bad waiter to where they didn't really serve the table very well. Well, this starts at its core. Then what kind of servant is that person? Is the, if you have a somebody who has a history of waiting tables, but they weren't very good at service, then when that person then suddenly goes and starts working in ministry, you might sit there and question and just be like, uh, why is that person working in ministry? They're not very qualified to work in ministry because they don't show that they're faithful with a little in the service of others. Well, such is the case with all of us. We all are in service to others in some way, form, or fashion, even a kid and a child of a family who has chores to do. 
Mothers especially. Fathers, they are there to serve their family. It's the first act of ministry. So even though we might be studying passages of Scripture having to do with the priests and the priesthood, there's a standard by which we should learn that we should do in the course of all service or any manner of service that we do. That's one. Two, a greater spiritual principle is this. God has called the children of Israel or anyone who is a part of Israel or adopted into Israel to be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom by which our advocates and our intermediaries between the common man, the world, the nations, and God. So the standards by which the Levitical priesthood carries itself should also be the standards by which all the people of Israel do the service as a kingdom of priests so that we are righteous and holy and pure when we are the intermediaries, when we go and are the one who is the advocate for one of the nations before God, we hold ourselves to the standard necessary, just like the Levitical priesthood did. Remember, the Levitical priesthood was established when God originally wanted all the firstborn of Israel to be the priests. But because of sin, because of mistakes, God took took an acceptable substitute, the Levitical priesthood, to be His servants in the service of His tabernacle and His temple. But we know coming into the future that all of Israel, all of His people, that we would be the fulfillment of God's Word for us to be a kingdom of priests, not just a tribe of priests, not just one group of us are priests, but all of us serve and minister in some form or fashion. So with that as a prerequisite, we can talk about what we should do in our service of the Lord. Well, let's start here in 1 Peter. I want to talk about this uh, passage of Scripture here because this really summarizes, in my mind, summarizes the heart of the book of Leviticus as we've gone through the book of Leviticus here uh, in the last couple of weeks of Torah portions as we're, we're going to be wrapping up the book of Leviticus here in the next week or so, that really I want to say this to sum up the entire heart of the Torah, which is this middle portion of the book of Leviticus. Reading here at 1 Peter, at chapter 13, Peter, an apostle of the Messiah, is speaking here. Let me just first say this, too. As I read 1 Peter, and we're going to read another passage that, that, that Peter spoke as well, I find myself, this is just casual conversation here, I find myself really enjoying the uh, preaching and the sermons of Peter. No shade toward, my, toward the Apostle Paul in all the words and letters that he wrote. But when I read Peter, there's a different spirit in the heart of the man when, he's, when you're reading his words versus the Apostle Paul's. Everybody kind of has their own flavor that they might prefer. But one of the things that uh, just as I read this, I really love the preaching of Peter. So with that as a prerequisite here, let's read some words from Peter here. Verse 13 of his first epistle, first chapter. Therefore, gird up your loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua Messiah. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as you, as he who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is exactly what it is. Our faith and hope is in Him, not in any of the corruptible things of the world, not in gold, not in silver, not in the traditions of our fathers. Our hope is in the blood of Messiah. That's where our hope is. That's where, it, because He was laid before the foundations of the earth. We have no, traditions have come and gone. Gold and silver had to be mined and discovered later on in the history of time. But from the foundations of the earth does the blood of Messiah lay. So we put our faith in that which is solid, which is firm, which is grounded from the beginning of all creation. And there he's, he's summing it up right there, talking about how we must uh, be holy in all of our conduct. I just got done talking about how we all are priests in some form or fashion, so we have to be mindful of our conduct amongst our brethren, amongst our families, in everything that we do. And as he's basically quoting from Leviticus where he says, Be holy for I am holy. That's the whole reason why we're studying Leviticus. That's the whole reason why we're learning about what is clean, what is unclean, what we should eat, what we shouldn't eat, what you know constitutes us being clean or unclean, how blood is unclean to us, that we are it is holy and is pure, so we're not to dabble with those things, mix those things. We're, not, we're supposed to be mindful of what we have intimate relations with. All of these things that establish us that if we follow these commandments, we become holy. Well, let me actually rephrase that because one of the things and theories that I like to say is this. God created us originally to be holy as holy parts of His creation. It's the sins of the world and the sins that we commit that defile us. What we have to do is how we have to bring ourselves back to an, the original state of holiness. One of the things as I was doing some studying recently... And um, talking about how, you know, things that we make contact with make us unclean and how it was appropriate to come into contact with certain things and not with other things. If something was very holy, like the Ark of the Covenant, we weren't to make contact with it lest we defile it with our sin. Now go back to the garden. Remember Adam and Eve? Remember what the serpent said to Adam and Eve when he recounted the commandment back to Eve and said, um, you know, what is it that you can't do? And it's all like, oh, has he truly said that you cannot eat it or touch it? But we know in our study that the original commandment God gave to Adam, man, was not about touching it. It's just that he shouldn't eat it. Why, why is that? Why, was he, why didn't he just put the restriction and say you weren't allowed to touch it? Well, that's because Adam in his creation and as he was created by God was holy. There was no defilement with Adam or the woman coming into contact with the forbidden fruit because he, they couldn't defile it. What defiled anything was committing the sin of putting it in their mouth, in their body, that they weren't supposed to do. That fruit belonged to God. It did not belong to them. But the defilement did not come from touching it. Only later, after sin has been brought into the world, is mankind corrupt, full of sin, full of uncleanness. And now we must be very mindful of what we touch, what we come into contact with. Don't touch the Ark of the Covenant, you'll die. When the children of Israel were at the base of Mount Sinai, about to receive the commandments of God and, about, and preparing themselves to hear the covenant of God in Exodus chapter 19, they were commanded, don't touch the mountain. 
If you touch the mountain, you will die because the mountain was holy ground. Holy ground where God was manifesting himself and that there was a boundary there. Do not defile the holy place of God by coming into contact with it. This is all the things that we are to learn in the course of the book of Leviticus, how to be holy. Be mindful of what you touch, what you come into contact with, what you eat, what you have sex with, all of these things. Be mindful of them so that you might be holy. In all of our conduct, this is what we are to do. This is how we are to carry ourselves. All right, back to our Torah portion, talking about chapter 21. Talking about the priests and some of the specific things they were to follow, one of the things talks about how there was a higher standard by, what the, by who the priests would marry, making sure to not marry a divorced woman, a harlot, someone that has profaned themselves perhaps in the past. It even cautions that even the daughter of a priest cannot profane herself because she profanes her father, and that there is this higher standard of morality that is for a priest. One of the things I want to do to tie it into a Brit Hadash, uh, passage in our New Testament is this. I want to go back one chapter. Technically, this was in last week's portion. However, there was a lot of things to talk about in last week's portion, uh, so I didn't get around to getting to this passage here. But I want to uh, go back to chapter 20 of Leviticus, and it's talking about specific sins about when a man commits adultery and that the adulterer and the adulteress, the ones that, the, those that committed adultery, both parties were to be put to death to draw a distinction. Now, of course, the Messiah, he touched on this. So if you would, turn with, to me, uh, turn with me to John chapter 8. Many of us are extremely familiar with the story, but we sometimes don't uh, connect this always to the actual Torah commandments that Yeshua was following. In fact, some might look here and say that, uh, that the Messiah didn't follow Torah by the way that he handled this situation. On the contrary, he simply asked the pointed questions to the other brethren around him as to question whether they were following Torah and not that they were questioning whether Messiah was following Torah. Remember, this question was brought to Messiah. He wasn't the adulterer. He wasn't the one who caught a woman in the act. He wasn't the one who committed the sin. He's being brought to him. He committed no sin in this matter. His immediate question is, did you guys commit any sin in this matter? This is what the question that was posed to him. In John chapter 8, let's begin at verse 2. Early in the morning, he came into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, and he said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that, sh that us that should, uh, should be stoned. But what do you say? And they said, this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Yeshua stooped down, wrote in the ground with his finger as though... He did not hear. And when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote in the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted of their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. Yeshua was left alone and the woman standing there in the midst. And Yeshua raised himself up. And saw no one but the woman. And he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers, accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Yeshua said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
Yeshua spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me should not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So what is going on here with all of this? Well, there's two verses in the Torah that are specifically interlocked in this matter that, um, that Yeshua is referencing without referencing them. Those commandments first comes from our, our previous Torah portion, Leviticus 20 at verse 10, where it says the adulterer and the adulteress are to die. You to kill both of them, the ones caught in the act of adultery. So these men are bringing one woman and saying she was caught in the act of adultery. We're to stone her, right? Testing him. Yet Yeshua, without even having to, uh, to ask it, he could have been more direct, but he was, uh, he was a little more coy here. And it actually allowed for perhaps the conviction of the spirit to fill the hearts of the men. Where he said, he's all like, those of you uh, first uh, without sin cast the first stone. One of the first questions is, where's the other guy? When you catch somebody in the act of adultery, there's two people involved. Where's the other person? If there were two people brought before him, then it's like, okay, yeah, the scripture says both them are to die. They were caught in the act of adultery. Both of them are to die. Where's the other one? This is where the scholars of, of Israel and, and Bible scholars have looked in and, and discovered in their own thought or in their own study and hypothesized that this woman was well known to be a temple harlot. That many people perhaps had committed this sin with her. And so the idea that he was caught in the act of adultery, not a surprise to anybody. Everybody knew. So all the ones, if you didn't commit the same sin, let you cast the first stone. Because remember, the, one who, the other one who committed the old adultery as well, they're to be stoned. So if anyone comes forward and says, well, I was a witness to the adultery. Oh, how is that? You were the other adulterer. You're to be stoned as well. Would you look at that? Let's look at the Torah. That's what would or should have happened if this was done appropriately. The other verse being referenced, uh, of course, is that in Deuteronomy 17, 7, it says witnesses are to cast the first stone. The ones who saw it actually happen are the ones to throw the first stone and be responsible for executing the Torah and executing those that have sinned. This is done for a couple of reasons. One is to ensure that if they truly are a witness and they've spoken truth, then they know what they saw and they know that they should be put to death. If there's any question as to what they saw, if truth truly has not been established that they saw what they saw, then they might hesitate being the one to cast that first rock because they would be the ones that would know whether the person was innocent. They might get a, a, a death row uh, pardon Basically, right then and there, if the witness could not be the one to throw the stone because the witness questioned or it was questionable what, how true their testimony was. And once again, again, saying this, where's the witness who throws the first stone? So that's what is being connected here. Now, why am I talking about all of this in, in the case of adultery? Now, going back to our current Torah portion, talking about the priests holding themselves to a higher standard. This is what I, I would say on this matter when it comes to the whole idea of marriage, adultery, sexual sins. When it comes to understanding a covenant relationship, whether we, if we truly are in the relationship with another person and it is a covenant, it is established, it is unbreakable, it has terms. Our covenant with God actually has, is an everlasting covenant. It doesn't have a frame of time by which it ends. 
It has witnesses that stand the test of time, like heaven and earth, to where even the witnesses of the covenant haven't gone away or haven't passed away to infirm that we have a covenant with God. When it comes to covenants, all, our entire relationship with God is all based on our understanding of covenants and what a true covenant relationship is. The best uh, example, the best contour, the best uh, um, thing that we can know and understand in this life of how important covenants are is the covenant of marriage. It is the example that teaches us how, what it means to truly love somebody and prefer one person above all others, to be in covenant, to defend that person no matter what, to love that person no matter what, to sacrifice for that person no matter what, to share meals with that person and anniversaries with that person. All of the things we do in, the, in a marriage proves that somebody understands covenant. If we, if, if we profane the covenant of marriage, if we can't understand the covenant of marriage, then how will we ever understand our covenant with God? How can we understand what it is to be in a relationship with God? Look, we profane covenants all the time. Friends come and go. We get into fights and arguments with other brethren, and we might have basic acquaintances and relationships that are all very weak, small covenants that we have with other people. Those things come and go. They're a dime a dozen. We trade out small covenants with one person all the time with people that come, go, you shake their hand, you know them, it's acquaintance, then they leave. You don't have any relationship with them. Those can dissolve. Those can go away. Those can diminish over time. And really, overall, we get on with life no problem. If we don't understand what a true great covenant is, like a covenant of marriage, where all these ceremonies contribute to the strength of that covenant, if we profane even that kind of covenant, if we can't understand that, then how can we ever work with God? How can we understand? How can we be in covenant with God? We, won't under, we, we can't understand what it is to keep His commandments. We can't understand what it is to keep His appointed times and His festivals, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. We can't understand anything about our relationship with the Lord if we can't keep holy the covenant of marriage. This is why this is so important. This is why this is such a high standard. This is why adultery in our spirit seems to be one of the worst of all the sins because it means you can't trust that person. You can't trust that person by the words that they say, by the actions that they take, that if they can't love, if they can't love somebody they are truly committed to in covenant, how can they love anybody? How can they? I mean, it's like, yeah, you can see that somebody can be a bad friend, but you could trust that they at least are faithful to the ones that they are committed to. If they're not even, if they can't even commit to something, then how can you trust that they have any conviction or commitment um, in anything in any area of their life? You can't. So if these types of sins, types of adultery, are what cannot be seen and, and can't be maintained and kept holy in the matter of priests who are responsible for coming into contact with the holy things of the Lord, then they're not qualified to be priests. That's why these commandments are so important. That's why adultery is this, this um, kind of this benchmark for whether somebody truly can serve as a priest to the Lord. Now, everything and all things are a case-by-case basis with all kinds of uh, sins, sexual sins, forgiveness that is given to them by, by brethren. Ultimately, you know, it's a case-by-case basis with all people. But 
According to Scripture, this idea that we don't understand the idea of covenant defilement, if, we, if marriage is just this haphazard thing that we don't consider to be important in any way, shape, or form, then we have no business operating the services and procedures of our covenant with God. This is why the priests have a higher standard. So, with that said... Let's now talk about how we go and we worship the Lord. In our Torah portion, it includes Leviticus chapter 23, which is the uh, covering of all the appointed times before the Lord. Now, it's interesting. These commandments now come after all the other instructions of Leviticus, almost with the, with the precedence of this. We must learn to be holy, to be righteous, to not eat any unclean things, to not be ones who commit uh, profane commandments, who are unclean, who, um, who profane uh, sexual morality, all of these things. We have to get all of these things straight. Only then is it appropriate, truly, for us to come into the feasts of the Lord, because we are to be a holy people Worship at the tabernacle and the temple was a holy place, the sanctuary. And then we have appointed times where we worship Him, which are holy times. Those three things should all come into uh, existence at the same time. A holy people at a holy place at a holy time. That's why they all come together. Now, in the absence of having Jerusalem and a temple and a place to worship the Lord... We are in the state of diaspora scattered into the nations to where we are trying to keep the, the appointed times of the Lord with the best of our ability, with our hearts in all things that we do. Now, are we, uh, is it cautioned to us to always do those things rightly and appropriately? Yes. If we had a temple and we were bringing those sacrifices before the Lord, there would be a great deal of protocol we would follow in the keeping of those commandments and those appointed times. Because we don't have that, we don't have as much of the fear that we will do something that is clearly out of order. However, at the same time, we are in the process of learning to keep these appointed times. And therefore, we should apply perhaps some of these things where if there's a certain kind of sin that is among you, if there's a certain person that's committing a certain type of sin, perhaps it would be best they not be in your fellowship during the keeping of the appointed times. These are decisions that have to be made by every leader of a community, of a fellowship, a congregation, or ones that would lead a certain event, such as one of the appointed times. And we have to decide what is the standards by which we will allow into our feasts. Even though it's not a holy place, even though there is no temple and there's not necessarily the fear that God's going to strike us dead because there's a, there's a gold article that we are not to touch except for the priest, perhaps. It's not that we have that in place, but we do have a holy time and we are called to be a holy people. We need to keep these commandments to the best of our abilities. Now, when it comes to uh, the Brit Hadashah portion for connections to the appointed times, um, if you find a list of the Torah portions that you could follow for this, uh, or the Brit Hadashah portions for this Torah portion, it's kind of funny to watch the list because it'll be a couple of verses here and there, and you go to that verse, and all it will say is, uh, the time of the unleavened bread was near, and then something happened. And it's like, well, that something that happened in the New Testament has nothing to do with the fact that unleavened bread was, was there or near. It's just simply referencing that certain events happened at appointed times. Well, we need to truly find maybe more of the connection that we could be encouraged by uh, when it comes to really we're studying the appointed times. What is it that we need to hear from the New Testament? Well, based on the time frame that this portion is always taught, what I want to do is I want to go to Acts chapter 2. 
which is perhaps the most detailed passage of a specific appointed time of something happening at that appointed time, with the exception of Passover, because we know the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper and the whole last... Um, whole last month we were talking about Passover. And so instead of homing in on Messiah, keeping Passover with his disciples, which we're commanded to learn about in uh, Leviticus 23, I want to talk about the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, otherwise known as Pentecost. We're getting ready and approaching that feast. So this is where I want to read this passage here and be encouraged by the words and the commandments of the New Testament, talking about this particular point in time. So let me start reading here, now Acts chapter 2, talking about the day of Pentecost. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came the sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon, uh, sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, and every nation under heaven. Because this was a pilgrimage feast, everybody had come to Jerusalem. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language." Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, at all, at, at, look, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each in our own language, in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and, dwelling, and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, um, uh, Pontus and Asia and, uh, and Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and other parts of Libya adjoining, serene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, and we hear them all speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So, there were all, so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Verse 13, others mocking said they are full of new wine. People were confused. They were making all of these, these connections. They were able to hear all of these languages and understand these things that they never could understand before. This was, was a marvel because some of these names are even too hard to even say sometimes, much less understand whatever language they speak. And so here, this is what the Spirit of God did for, did for the people there in the first century at the time of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that filled them. And it was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. I always love the fact that wind, the Ruach, the Spirit, is always likened unto wind. It was the Spirit of God that breathed life into Adam, even in the garden. And so the Spirit of God is present throughout all of Scripture. And that here, this is what we are to learn at this time as we're approaching this appointed time. Now, the ones that mocked, they said they are full of new wine. Now, this is where we get into Peter's sermon at the Feast of Pentecost. This is where I was talking about how much I loved Peter's sermon. Well, I kind of knew what I was talking about is because I knew I was coming here. So let us now hear Peter's words being spoken as he is teaching us all at this time that uh, encompasses this entire concept of being filled with the Spirit and what is truly happening here in the first century. But Peter, verse 14, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. 
And it, came, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming and the great awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come, up, come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Yeshua of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, and He is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Yeshua God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, I let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this, Yeshua, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Yeshua Messiah for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Peter standing up, and this is the, this is the, 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 the preaching of preaching here going on. After the Spirit's been filled up and somebody you know, kind of mocks and says, Are you guys drunk? And he says, No, we're not drunk. This is what is going on. And he's quoting other parts of Scripture here. He's, he's staying what the prophet Joel said and what the words of David were. And he's saying all of these things in a part of this message. It's a good balanced message of reading Scripture and teaching something then from the heart and applying what Messiah did in the course of all of this, in the outpouring of the Spirit. This is why we're receiving the Spirit, because Messiah came and did these miracles. This is also why it's tradition that we do in our events is that we uh, do baptisms and mikvahs at 
the Feast of Weeks at Shavuot, at Pentecost. Because just like the people who heard this, heard this teaching, they were cut to the heart and said, what are we to do now? They heard the words of Peter and they believed, such as the testimony of any preacher would love for his sermon to have that same testimony. Did my teaching cut you to the heart? <laughs> awesome. That's all power to God that he would do that and that the Lord would lead me to say those things to you. That's what every minister desires. And that's exactly what happened. And after they repented of these things, he said, look, go and be baptized in the name of the Messiah. And then you receive and ask for the remission of sins. That's what we do in the course of our uh, events. When you keep the Feast of Pentecost, Shavuot, that that's what we are to do to make that proclamation of faith and to remember and understand all of these things. That's why we read this passage at this time, and it's all having to do with Shavuot. These appointed times are, play, are, are times and seasons by which people open up their hearts to God. As I said, these are holy times before God. There's significance to it. And so when you go and you celebrate that feast, let's say even somebody who is struggling with their holiness because they're consumed in sin, there is no tabernacle and temple because there's no holy place or sanctuary for us to perform these services, but there is a holy time. There is a time frame by which God says, I will be with you, I will make appointment with you at this time. When you go and enter into that sanctuary of time and space, then that's when God does things, reveals things. That's when His Spirit moves. That's what's so fascinating about keeping of the... Um, I've listed three things here. A holy people, a holy place, and a holy time. Three parts that all need to come together and be one at one point in time if we're ever to keep these festivals rightly and appropriately. But we are not one, we are not whole, we make mistakes. God is one all the time, but God is also manifest in three different parts as well. If all we do, they, we might struggle with the first two. The second one, we don't even have an opportunity to go to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. The first one, we are all sinners, but we're trying to be holy as God has called us to be holy. If we keep in the commandments, we're doing our best, but we fail at the first two. Holy people, holy place. But if we can keep this holy time, then that's the door that opens for the Holy Spirit to be revealed. That His Spirit is poured out, not just on the Feast of Pentecost, not just on Shavuot, but also on all of the other appointed times in the feasts, when we keep them with our heart, with the best of our ability, we're, we're turning our spirit to keeping those appointed times. And that's when the Spirit of God reciprocates, responds, and He fills our spirit, our hearts, and our minds with, with, with the feeling of peace, with the feeling of joy. To where oh, those words that, that David said right there, where it's all like, I, because of what the Messiah did at Passover and raising from the dead and his crucifixion, uh, my flesh has no fear of death. What greater joy is that? If you can remove from a person the fear of death, then what will they fear? Nothing. Now, I mean, you can be afraid of all kinds of things. You can be afraid of heights. You can be afraid of spiders. You can be afraid of snakes. Why are you afraid of those things? Because you're afraid that if you fall, you'll die. You're afraid if you get bit by that spider, you'll die. You'll be afraid that that snake is poisonous. It bites you and you die. If you have no fear of death, why do you have a fear of heights, spiders, uh, snakes, or anything else of the like if you have no fear of death? That's what Messiah gives us. He removes the fear and replaces it with love. He replaces it with the fact that we can worship Him in one accord without fear of what's to come. 
This is what all of the appointed times teach us. To follow God with our whole hearts, with our spirit, and to walk uprightly before Him and with the testimony of Yeshua, the Messiah, in our pocket, we then have the testimony that death has no power over us. We should not fear anything of the world. That's what the appointed times can teach us. One last thing I want to touch on here. Um, in our Torah portion at the end of it, there's one uh, story that seems to go overlooked sometimes because we always focus on the feasts and, and things like that. It's a story of uh, someone who blasphemed the Holy Spirit. What it is, if you go to uh, Leviticus chapter 24, at verse 10, it talks about an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian. She went among the children of Israel. And then what she did is she cursed the Lord. She blasphemed the name of the Lord, and she was brought before uh, the leaders, brought before Moses, and she was stoned. And this ties directly with another passage in the New Testament. Uh, if we go to our last passage here, go to Mark chapter 3, at verse 28, where we have the unpardonable sin. Two verses here. Where the Messiah, and this question was, might have come up, but the Messiah makes it very clear. Mark chapter 3 at verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies, blasphemies they, utter, they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject of eternal condemnation. Because they said he has an unclean spirit. The unpardonable sin, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, that's, uh, that, that's kind of a warning to us sometimes because all of us have maybe let loose lips uh, fly sometimes and taken the name of the Lord in vain or said something of the Spirit of God. But what, this what I truly believe that this means, and this concludes everything that I was talking about just now, is this. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to outright and utterly reject God. To reject his power, to reject the power of what he can do. Somebody might say, if we're talking about those feasts again, holy people, holy place, uh, and a holy time. We might say, you know what? If we don't have the temple in Jerusalem, God can't move in this place. If you are so such a, a, an unholy people that you, have, you are so unclean, God can't move in this place. The Holy Spirit can't even move, can't do anything in this place. If you were to say that, Lord, I'm not saying that right now. When what you are speaking is that the power of the Holy Spirit cannot overcome things of the world. You are saying that the power of God is less than. Such is blasphemy. Let us never fall into the, to fall into the trap to somehow think that the Lord's Spirit can't move or can't change on the heart of someone or something or in some place or at some time. The power of the Holy Spirit can move even on people who are of different races, different nations, different tongues, different sins, different they, wherever they might be, the power of the Holy Spirit can do those things. Don't, uh, don't ever diminish the power of the Holy Spirit. In, the, in this ministry, we, we've talked, uh, you know, we, we've said a lot of things in the course of this ministry. The, at the very heart of everything that we've ever taught in this ministry for 25 years is this. Don't speak against the things of God. We've talked about how uh, when the end time comes, the, 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 the Messiah says there's one sign for us to look for. The cessation of an altar that's being set up in Jerusalem, the abomination of desolation that is mentioned by Daniel the prophet. Whatever you do, you can question anything else that's going on in the world, but don't speak against that altar because it is holy before God and it is His commandments. And when you do so, you side with the anti-Messiah. Don't speak against it. 
We can, we can talk till we're blue in the face about anything and everything else. But our one counsel that we might say, don't blaspheme that altar. Don't speak against it. I'm saying now there's at least one more, at least one more that you absolutely cannot do. Do not blaspheme the power of the Holy Spirit and what He can do, what He can move, and how He can stir the hearts of people, the minds of people, and the things that they can learn and teach in a matter of an instant be when the Lord pours out His Spirit upon, them, upon somebody. In the first century, He poured out His Spirit and people suddenly knew a hundred other languages. If this Holy Spirit can do that, then don't question anything that the Spirit can bring revelation to a person. Even the grossest, most disgusting leper or sinner could preach the power and the Word of God. We're maybe still cautioned not to come in contact with them, physical contact with them. However, don't ever blaspheme, blaspheme the fact that the Holy Spirit can move in that way. Don't speak against the Holy Spirit. Messiah gave us that instruction, and I am reiterating that as well. We must submit ourselves to the Spirit of God in how it moves among the people and what it can do in the hearts of His people. Wherever we are, whatever location we might be, whatever feast that we are keeping, if we are keeping it with our heart, if we are pursuing God with our whole hearts and trying to be holy as He is holy, keeping His commandments, if we have an understanding of what the tabernacle and the temple is, and if it was established today, what we would be doing, even though we don't have it today. But then we also take those appointed times, we keep them with all of our heart, and we allow the Spirit of God to move in us. That is, that is what our testimony should be. As believers in God, as followers of the Torah and His commandments, and as those that have a testimony of Yeshua the Messiah being our Lord and Savior. That is who, what we should do. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for uh, your instruction. Once again, we thank you, Lord, for all the words, uh, the teachings that come from the first century, for all these writings, Father, for the blessing that it is in the world that we live in where we have these words printed for us on many pages and that we're able to read these words. We're not restricted by the, by the technology, Lord, that we can never hear these words or that it's a labor for these words to come to us, Lord. But these words and your, the Word of God is so very near to us, Lord. It's in our pockets. It's in our, on our bookshelves. And we can receive this instruction. Father, we thank you, Lord. I pray that these words be manifestations of your Spirit, that they penetrate our hearts and minds, Lord, and that we live by these words and these commandments and these instructions. We thank you for the testimony of the Messiah, Yeshua, Lord, and what He has done for us for sending your Son, Father, to be the, the, uh, to, for His blood to be the remission of our sins, Lord, and for conquering death so that we have no fear of it, Lord. And now, Father, if we believe in those things and if we believe in the commandments of the Father, the power and the testimony of the Son, Father, may we now submit, Lord, to the Holy Spirit in how you move in the hearts and minds of the people, Lord, in how you convict the soul, in how you um, uh, cause our emotions to stir, how you bring knowledge forth, Lord, uh, and wisdom, Father, may we submit to your Holy Spirit in all things that we do. We love you. We thank you once again for this time, this opportunity, for this holy time as well on this Sabbath to receive this word and this instruction. We submit all things to you and surround us in your perfect will. We give you all the honor, glory, and praise in this place. It's in your Son, Yeshua, that we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Rechah 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.